This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180TAC. Get out there and have some fun. Episode 192, a primer to day trip mountaineering. Hey friends, Kurt here. Thank you so much for listening, and thank you for all that you do to help promote the Adventure Sports Podcast. Thank you for sharing the show with your friends, and if you are a new listener today, I want you to know today's show departs from our standard format. There's no interview today, but instead, today is an introduction to day trip mountaineering. Lots of information is going to be coming to you really, really quickly. You may want to grab a pen and a sheet of paper. Hope you enjoy the show. And please do continue. Get the word out. Tell all your friends about the Adventure Sports Podcast. Comment on our site. Let us know what you're thinking. We'd love to hear from you. You can also subscribe to our mailing list on the adventuresportspodcast.com. Thanks and enjoy the show. This episode of the Adventure Sports Podcast is sponsored by BiotropicLabs.com, custom formulators and sports performance supplements for active people like you. Designed for everyone from weekend warriors and outdoor enthusiasts to high-level athletes, if your body moves, you need Biotropic. Hello and welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. This is your host, Kurt Linville. Today's show is a how-to step-by-step guide for what I call day-trip mountaineering. And when I say day-trip mountaineering, I'm talking about climbing 14ers, I'm talking about climbing smaller peaks, things that are not expedition-length climbs. However, day-trip mountaineering can include some overnighters. You can incorporate backpacking trips into these mountains, but I'm talking about in general, mountains that you can climb in a day. So we're going to talk about lots of different aspects of mountaineering for these smaller mountains. So we're going to talk about choosing the right peak. We're going to talk about route finding. We're going to talk about what you need to take with you so that you can be safe and have a successful climb. We will talk about safety. We're going to talk about how to climb because climbing these peaks is not trivial. They may not be Mount Everest, right? It may not take weeks of work to get to the top of one of these, but they are still big mountains and they deserve our respect. We will talk about altitude sickness and we will talk about things like when to turn back and not get summit fever. So I think today's show is going to be a lot of fun. And we have had a lot of different mountaineers on the Adventure Sports Podcast who have given us trip reports and regaled us with wonderful stories about climbing monster peaks and all sorts of weather conditions. And, you know, I love those shows. But let's face it, not everybody can be an expedition-style mountaineer. But everyone can climb day-trip peaks. And it is a hobby that has added so much to my own life. If you have not yet climbed your first peak, then this is the show for you. I'm going to give you all the information that you need to be successful and safe when doing day trip mountaineering. If you are already a mountain climber 
and you enjoy the hobby, then please listen in anyway and share with your friends. Perhaps you'll hear something new from me, perhaps not, but at a minimum, it'll be fun to compare notes and to spend a little bit of time thinking about what I know must be one of your very favorite hobbies. So, let's start with a story. Day trip mountaineering peaks, in general, don't require any technical gear. Now, obviously, you can find a technical route on most any mountain, but most of the mountains I'm talking about are ones that you can climb without ropes, you can climb without... Fear of a fall, although some of these mountains do have exposure for the most part, that exposure, it would be difficult to fall and get hurt. I'll just say it that way. Not that you won't get way up there and and get a little adrenaline rush, but uh, usually you have places that you can walk or scramble and not actually have to do any technical climbing. So what is a day like when you climb one of these peaks? I am not a huge peak bagger. Um, Some people like... uh, Jerry Roach, for instance, over 2,000 peaks, just amazing. And a lot of others in Colorado love to go out and climb mountains just every weekend that they can. I have enjoyed mountaineering over the years a lot, and I, I usually summit a few mountains every summer, but I don't know. I probably have 50, 60, maybe 70 summits in in my experience, so enough to, to know a few things about it, and I don't claim to be the expert, but... A typical day climbing a 14er, for example, and for those of you who may not know, a 14er is a mountain that breaks 14,000 feet in elevation. But a typical day climbing a 14er means that you're going to have a really early start. Depending on the time of the year and the weather, you probably will be starting in the dark. You're going to hike for several hours to get to the top. The goal is going to be to summit early, probably around lunchtime, and to get off the mountain before afternoon storms come down to increase the the hazards for the hike. So it's an early rise, and then it's a long hike, and sometimes the miles aren't that long. I mean, if you think about it, a good backpacking pace, a good solid pace is about a 20-minute mile. And on a good trail that's not too steep, that's not too difficult, that means you're going to do about three miles an hour. On a 14er, you should anticipate about an hour per mile, so one mile per hour. And another way that people say it is maybe go ahead and say, I'll do three miles per hour, but then add an hour for every thousand feet of elevation that you're going to climb, which usually on a 14er means you're going to do about one mile per hour. So so to get a better feel for what climbing a 14er might be like, I would like to talk about Long's Peak. Now, Long's Peak is a really dominant peak in the Front Range of Colorado. And since most of the population of Colorado is in the Front Range, people look up and see that mountain most days. And, you know, it kind of gets into people's psyche. They want want to know what it's going to feel like to summit Long's Peak. And so Long's Peak is a popular 14er in Colorado. It gets a lot of traffic. But I think it's kind of a a fun peak to talk about because it has a little bit of everything. So I'm going to recount some of my stories about climbing Long's Peak so you get a better feel for what this day trip mountaineering is like. Now, Long's Peak is a longer climb than a lot of the 14ers. I would say the average distance to the summit of a 14er is probably around five miles. Long's Peak to the top, I believe, is seven and a half miles. So round trip, we're talking about a 15-mile day. And 15 miles of hiking takes a while in good conditions on good trail. Long's Peak has, uh, 
Oh, I wouldn't call good trail. It's well established, but it's not like a sidewalk trail that you might think of when you're walking, backpacking through a nice level stretch of the forest or something. Instead, you're actually climbing a mountain. So 15 miles of very strenuous and sometimes challenging hiking. There's some scrambling where you do have to use your hands. There's some exposure. You definitely have uh, lots of exposure to weather and amazing views from the top. But I've climbed Long's Peak three times, and uh, probably by accident. Rather than trying to bag all the 54 14ers in Colorado, I've just been more interested in climbing for the sake of climbing. And I've had just a ton of fun getting up these mountains. And if someone wants to go up a mountain that I've already done, I'm quick to say sure, because like I said, it's just a lot of fun. So that's how I ended up on Long's Peak three times. My first climb was with my buddy Leon. And we were, uh, I think, 20 years old, 21 years old, something like that. Young, fit, and exhausted from lack of sleep and, and really hard work at school. And we decided to try to summit Long's Peak. Well, we got to the camp area at the base of Long's Peak too late to get a campsite. And we ended up sleeping in the car on a rural back road. And we didn't sleep very well. But when we finally woke up, we were way late. So like I said, you gotta you got to expect an hour per mile. So getting to the summit of Long's Peak is probably about a seven, seven and a half hour climb. And it was seven o'clock in the morning when we woke up. So that meant that we would not summit the mountain until maybe 2.30 in the afternoon and add to that that it was a cloudy, kind of stormy looking day. So it's a good day to not get stuck on a mountain. And so we decided that we would go ahead and attempt the mountain and see if the weather got bad, if it got worse or not. But we also knew that we were really limited on time. Now, Leon, great friend. I miss this guy. Lives in Canada now, and I haven't seen him in years. But Leon, if you're listening to this show, thanks, buddy. You sure did um, make a wonderful friend for me. And uh, we had so many fun adventures together. But this morning, we decided that we had to climb. And Leon is a fairly competitive fellow. Everything's a race. So knowing that other people had started climbing at 2, 3, 4 in the morning, we thought, oh, no, we're way behind. And so we took off up this mountain as fast as we could hike. And every time that the trail was level enough, we ran. And um, one of the things that we used to do just for fun is we had made a sport out of, I don't know what you'd call it, maybe rock hopping. (laughs) We would go to a boulder field or to big rock outcroppings, and we would challenge each other to leap from one rock to another and try to land it without twisting a knee or an ankle or breaking a leg or falling off a cliff. And I know it sounds kind of nutty, but we had so much fun practicing jumping and running on boulders and rock outcroppings, and it required a lot of balance and uh, a fair amount of coordination, and it was just a ton of fun for us to challenge ourselves that way. And we learned that a lot of the same jump turn moves that people used with the long straight skis back in those days also worked to cover quite a bit of ground by hopping from boulder to boulder. So when we ran out of trail, which Long's Peak does after several miles, 
you end up in this vast boulder field. And we're talking about boulders that some are the size of a car, some are the size of a sofa, some are the size of maybe your your living room chair, but pretty good sized boulders just piled in a heap. And I don't know what the distance is across the boulder field, but it's got to be at least a mile. It might be a couple of miles. So here we are running and hopping and dashing and scrambling over the boulders as fast as we can possibly go. And as you climb up the mountain on this vast boulder field, you finally come to the keyhole. And the keyhole is a break in the ridge of Long's Peak, a break in the rock where you can hike through. Otherwise, it's just too steep to to get up without ropes in a lot of other places. So we go through the keyhole, and on the back side of the keyhole, the boulder field is gone. But now it's a slab of rock sloping steeply down to the valley with little ledges and ridges on it. And the trail is to walk on these ledges and ridges and work your way across this until you get to the next section of the mountain. Well, by this point, we had climbed all the way up into the clouds, and we were lucky it was not a thunderstorm-type day. There wasn't a lot of energy in the clouds. They were just hanging out over the mountain in in a soft, hush, kind of a cool fog. And so we were running along these ledges and just having a ton of fun. I have to tell you, a few people yelled at us because they were getting nervous. They thought we were going too fast. But, you know, we were on our game, and it was a really fun day. After these ledges, you come to different sections of the mountain. There's a a section that I believe they call Broadway. It's a a large ledge with some boulders on it that you walk along for a good distance. And if you look down off of this ledge, then it is a huge drop, maybe 1,000 feet, maybe 2,000 feet. And it's this beautiful, like, four-foot-wide walkway where you can walk way up in the sky on this mountain. So we're jogging along this walkway, scrambling over the boulders, and then you get to a home stretch that goes up the mountain pretty darn steep, and again, you're on a slab of rock. When it's dry, if you have on good hiking boots, you can walk up it. If it gets wet, it's too slippery, and it gets very, very dangerous. And if it's wet, then you're going to be using your hands. If it ices up, you better hope you have a rope. So anyway, we went scrambling up this as fast as we could, finally got to the top, no view whatsoever. All we can see is white fog everywhere. But it was an exhilarating, fun time with Leon, and we turned around and started scrambling back down the mountain, and we ran almost the whole way down, only stopping when the terrain got too technical for running. And we ended up summiting Long's Peak, and getting back to the car in seven hours. So it should have been a 14, 15-hour hike. But that day was just, it was one of those days where everything went right. We had such a fun time. However, I never saw the view. And one of my favorite things about climbing mountains is, of course, seeing the view. So later, another friend of mine, Bill, decided that he wanted to climb Long's Peak. And so Bill and his wife invited me to come along, and they wanted to get the proper start. And so I believe we were at the trailhead at 2 o'clock in the morning, and we started hiking first with headlamps and made our way up the mountain. The sun came up. We continued to hike along, and our pace this time was a sane pace. The climb, I don't remember how long it took, but it was more of an average climb. It probably was a 12, 14-hour climb that day, but it was sunny. 
It was beautiful. And I got to see all of the views. We summited. We came back down. Same route. And I had such a fun time. Long's Peak is such a classic mountain. It has a little bit of everything on it and such beautiful views. I was just elated when I got back down. So when I got to the office after that climb, after that weekend, I started mouthing off. If anybody wants to climb Long's Peak, I'm game. I'll do it again. So my boss at the time took me up on that offer, which meant that I had to go back and climb Long's Peak a third time. And again, it was a beautiful day and we had a lovely climb and it was just lots and lots of fun. But by the time I did the same keyhole route on Long's Peak three times, I finally said, okay, if I climb this mountain again, I have to do another route. But that's kind of what a typical mountaineering day is like. It's really hard work. You have amazing rewards by summiting these peaks and seeing the amazing views and just the feeling of accomplishment. And I think it's kind of a funny thing. It's not masochism, but it's self-discovery for sure. When you are doing something very difficult and you feel like you just are out of steam, you got to stop, you want to turn around, you wish you weren't there anymore, then if you learn how to persevere, you learn how to push past that and continue on step after step, hour after hour, until you accomplish a major goal. Wow, it is just very self-satisfying. And I don't mean that in a selfish way or even a self-centered way, but learning about yourself and finding out what you're capable of and saying, wow, I did that. It, it gives you strength for the rest of life. When you go back to difficult situations, maybe it's at the office or other situations in life where you need that same stamina and that endurance and that tenacity to keep on in the face of adversity, then you have experience to draw from. You can go back to the climb and you say, you know what, if I can do that, then I can get through this too. And that's one of the most beautiful things about mountaineering. But then once you get past that, let's say you've done a half dozen peaks or maybe a dozen peaks and you know what the challenge is like and every time you get to the top there's no surprises anymore you know what you can do then it just becomes even more satisfying because you can enjoy nature in such an amazing way so that's just a brief sketch of what it's like to climb a 14er now let's go into some of the details if you want to climb a 14er how do you get started what do you need to do The first thing is you want to worry about your physical condition. Now, you don't have to be in excellent condition to do these day trip mountain peaks. You do have to be in good enough condition. And so I tell most people, as long as you have a healthy heart and you're not hugely overweight, then you can climb a 14er if you have the determination to do so. But if you have a heart condition or something like that, maybe asthma or or some other lung condition, you better check in with a doctor first. Make sure that you get the A-OK to give it a shot. And the reason I say that is that these mountains are very high altitude and very strenuous. And people with heart conditions um, are really taking a huge risk with their lives when they try to push themselves at altitude like that. So make sure that at a minimum, you've got a good heart and good lungs and that you've been moving so get on your feet walk try not to sit all the time maybe do some short runs make sure that you have enough stamina to stay on your feet for you know 8 10 12 hours in a row and if you can do that then you're ready to attempt your first peak 
The second thing is that you need to choose what your peak is going to be. And this is part of the fun. Boy, planning these trips, you find a peak that catches your attention. Maybe it's Long's Peak because you've been looking at it from Denver for the last five years. Maybe it's another peak that you see in a photograph that you're going to travel to to go climb. Maybe you go to 14ers.com and you see these beautiful pictures of these amazing summits and you pick one. You say, that one doesn't look too hard and I think I can do it. Once you latch on to that peak and it becomes an object, it becomes a goal for you, then it's just fun to study routes, to learn more about it, to look at it and try to imagine what's it going to be like to be there and to climb that. And when you find your first peak, then you need to get together the information for actually climbing it. And I would recommend for your first uh, day trip mountain, and if you're in Colorado and that day trip mountain is a 14er, that you pick one that is moderate to easy on the mountaineering scale. And the reason is because these mountains are all surprisingly strenuous. And uh, it's good to do something that's a little bit more mild to start with. That would not be Long's Peak. Long's Peak is not the easy one you start with. Long's Peak is better climbed after you've done several and you know what you're capable of. But a couple that I would recommend... If uh, you want to go to the Sawatch Range, Huron is a wonderful, easy, gorgeous introductory peak to climb. It's a great one. I also recommend Quandry. Quandry is outside of Breckenridge, and it's not a very difficult peak, but it's very rewarding with the views. And in the Mosquito Range, you could also do, some people do Sherman first, and Sherman is a very easy mountain. It's a very easy mountain, but it's not very pretty. Sherman really, the only reason that I see to climb Sherman is if you want to do all the 14ers and you want to do an easy one. Or, like I did, try to climb it in the wintertime. Now it's a challenge. Uh, Some others, Lincoln, Democrat, and Bross. Those, pretty easy peaks. Again, those are prettier, but not as pretty as some of these others. Another couple of peaks that make good first peaks are Grays and Tories. Now, Grays and Tories are not as easy as some of these others, but they're doable as a first peak. And what's fun about Grays and Tories is if you get an early start, and if the weather holds, you can climb Grays and then do the saddle between the two, and also summit Tories in the same day, and then come back down to the same trailhead. So Grays and Tories is beautiful, and it's a delightful climb as well. So just a few tips, but I, I tell you, my favorite would be Huron. If you have the time to get to the Sawatch Range for your first peak, Huron is awesome. My son climbed Huron and said, well, I'm not sure that felt like a 14er. It really is that easy. It's not It's not terribly difficult. Moderate trail, beautiful views. It's just delightful. Another one that I really enjoyed was Handy's, and we did that one just this summer. Handy's is gorgeous, and we went to American Basin and climbed it that way. And I tell you what, it's not a terribly difficult climb. It takes a lot of work to get to the trailhead because it's a good distance out, but Handy's is absolutely gorgeous. Such a rewarding place just to be, whether you're climbing or not. Bentgate Mountaineering, located in Golden, Colorado, has been outfitting backcountry travelers for more than 20 years. The snow is melting and the crags are drying out. Time to break out the hiking boots, rock climbing shoes, and tents. Gear materials and designs are more evolved than ever. From the latest ultralight gear to the tried-and-true classics, Bentgate has the premier brands for climbing, hiking, and camping essentials, including Arcteryx, Hilleberg, Nemo, Western Mountaineering, and many more. Need advice on destinations, getting started, or on fine-tuning your quiver of gear? 
The BentGate staff are all passionate adventurers who can give you the data and advice you need. BentGate is also hosting numerous events and speakers this summer, so please check out their events page at bentgate.com for more information as well as to see their full product selection. Have you heard of the Sayuai Iris 4G Action Camera? It's Adventure Sports' first always connected camera using mobile 4G LTE networks. Push a single button and you kick off a live stream to your friends, family, and fans so they can join you on your crazy adventures. See for yourself how it works. Visit live.sayuai.com and sign up for free. Follow some of their professional mountain bikers, skimboarders, motocross riders, and of course adventurers and join in on the fun as it happens. That's live.sioeye.com. Once you choose that peak, then you need to worry about routes. I think the best way to sort out the route for climbing a mountain is to use Jerry Roach's book, Colorado 14ers. Jerry Roach uh, did a stellar job putting together a book that describes major routes on all of the 14ers in Colorado. And if you're not climbing in Colorado, then you're going to need to find another resource. Um, But it describes how to get to the trailhead in your car. It describes how the route goes, where you're supposed to turn, you know, where the false summits are and where the the forks in the trail come up, which way you need to go when you're in the forest. All of that stuff is there so that you can easily uh, find your way up to the top of a mountain. Now, another great resource I already mentioned is 14ers.com. A lot of great information on there, a lot of routes, and there's even a phone app for 14ers.com. So you can download the route information and pictures and things like that to your phone, and you'll even have that information when you are out of coverage on the mountain, which, by the way, you generally will be out of coverage on most of these mountains. Once you have chosen the peak and you have found the route and the information that you need to climb it, the next step is to get your gear together and Day trip mountaineering doesn't take a lot of gear. You need a great pair of hiking boots. Some people do climb 14ers in tennis shoes, usually trail runners. If you do that, I would recommend that you have some sort of a gaiter just to keep the rocks out of your shoes and realize that you're not going to have any ankle support. So if you're going to try to climb a mountain in tennis shoes, make sure you have good tread and make sure that you have strong enough ankles. You don't have to worry about twisting an ankle or something like that. Um, You're going to also need a day pack doesn't have to be huge, but it needs to be big enough to carry um, some rain gear, some food, water, and first aid. And that's really all you need to take in that bag. And then you also need to make sure that you do have the proper food and water and first aid to put in the kit. So let's talk a little bit about that. Day trip mountaineering is seasonal. Most people climb in the summer. In the springtime, these mountains are still covered with snow. So if you head up a mountain, say in May, it's very likely that it's going to turn into a quasi-winter ascent because you're going to hit snow and be on snow for a long way. So you better know how to find your route. You better know how to do a self-arrest if you were to slide on the snow. You may need crampons. You may need an ice axe. You need to be familiar with winter mountaineering. So that's a whole nother level. And of course, you can climb these mountains in the wintertime, but now you're dealing with extreme cold, high winds, crazy weather. So if you're going to do winter mountaineering, which is a blast, I love it, but you better get some experience first in uh, in mountaineering in general, but also in how to build emergency shelters in the snow, how to do navigation with poor visibility, 
and how to stay warm in extremely cold conditions. All these things matter a lot before you do the winter trips. But if you're doing your standard summer trip, then really what you need, you know, you're going to you're going to hike probably in a pair of shorts, but most people end up with some sort of a long pant on by the time they get to the top. It just gets so cold. In July and August, I have been snowed on on top of 14ers. It's just the way it is. Your average day up there, the temperature is probably in the 40s and the wind is probably blowing 20 to 30 miles per hour. So a, a 45 degree temperature with that kind of wind is bone chilling, even in the summertime. I have had days up on these 14ers where the sun is blazing down and it's 65 degrees and you just feel like you're on the beach. You know, it's beautiful. But I think that's probably more the exception than the rule. So be prepared for cold. If you start pushing the season a little bit into the fall, then you better be prepared for adverse conditions. Late season, late fall or late summer season snowstorms surprise hikers, and uh, people have gotten in a a lot of trouble that way. So choose your season, and if you're going to push the season a little bit, then you better have more training, more experience, and more gear. That's just the way that these things go. So you're going to be hiking in shorts. You're going to take some long pants. You're going to have some sort of a a T-shirt on, but you're also going to have a fleece and a shell. And it's good to have rain pants as well because it's very likely that you know you could get caught in a rainstorm. And when the wind is blowing at 30 miles an hour and the temperature is 45 degrees and it's raining sideways, it's nice to have something to keep your legs dry. What else do you need when you go on a 14er? You need a good hat. You're going to need a hat to cover your ears, something like a, a ski hat, something like that, because at the top it's going to be really, really cold. But you also need a hat that's going to keep the sun off your face and off your neck while you hike because you may be in the sun for 12 hours. And if that's the case, you know what kind of a burn you're going to get when you're up at 12, 13, 14,000 feet above sea level. You'll just get fried. So you got to make sure you cover up. I've begun backpacking and mountaineering in long sleeve shirts. And even though they're a little bit warmer, I have found that a thin, loose, long sleeve shirt that keeps the sun off my arms, it allows me to cover most of my neck and I can unbutton the front and get more air. I I really like that for mountaineering. And if it gets colder, you can button everything up and you have that little insulating layer there. So protection from the sun and the wind and the cold, that's my preference. You also need to think about shelter. And when I say shelter, I really mean insulation. So I already said you're going to have a fleece, you're going to have a long pant, you're going to have rain gear. But you need to have some idea of how to find shelter if you get caught in a storm that you need to wait out. And when I mean find shelter on a mountain, that usually means that you are finding a place out of the wind. You may not find anything out of the rain, but at least if you can kind of duck down in a hole where you're out of the wind then it becomes much, much more manageable. The wind just sucks the heat out of your body. So if you can get to a place where you have a windbreak, then that shelter might save your life. It really might. In the wintertime, you better know how to make a snow cave before you head up. And even in the summer, you should have some experience with making emergency shelters to get through a freak storm. Some people say that you should never be separated from your sleeping bag when you're doing mountaineering. And I don't know many people that actually carry a bag to the top of a 14er, but it's definitely not bad advice if you are pushing the season. You know, if you think that you could get trapped and need to spend the night up there, then a sleeping bag really could save your life. I find that there are other ways 
to create insulation and get through a, a bitter cold night without having to have a sleeping bag. But if you don't know those emergency shelter techniques, then you either need to learn them or consider their advice and, and go ahead and lug that sleeping bag up the mountain. And I did a a podcast, man, it's been well over a year ago, on emergency shelter. And I did it just because I thought it might benefit people. Maybe someone uh, could get out of harm's way. So go back and listen to that. And it describes in detail how to make emergency shelters of several different types. And that can be very useful anytime you're going to go into the wilderness, whether you're climbing a mountain or just going on on a day hike. It's a good skill to have. What about food? You are going to have to eat while you're on this mountain, and you're going to be exerting yourself, so you need to eat foods that will keep you fueled and energetic. And one word of advice, altitude sickness happens to most people on these high peaks. And so the the we'll talk about altitude sickness a lot more in a little bit, but the bottom line is the first symptom is you get an upset stomach, maybe a headache and an upset stomach, and it makes you lose your appetite. So if you want to stay energetic then you probably need to eat your food early. I try to eat as much as I can at the lower elevations. So as I get to the higher elevations, if I lose my appetite, I don't have to force myself to eat as much. Although sometimes the right foods can help to alleviate alleviate that uh, that altitude sickness on your stomach a little. But the bottom line is um, plan to eat your food early. Try to stay fueled instead of getting hungry and weak and then trying to refuel. And what does that mean? Well, boy... Different energy foods work for different people. I used to try to do a lot of carbohydrates, and most of your energy bars and things like that are carbohydrate-focused. I have found that I personally do better with more of a protein and fat diet without the carbs. And the reason for that is you get longer-lasting, time-release energy. And so instead of eating, oh, you know, an energy bar, I would be more likely to have a squeeze tube that's full of almond butter and some regular butter with maybe just a touch of sweetener in it, and you water it down so it's squeezable. You put it in a squeeze tube, and it makes a a really good high-energy, high-fat energy source. I have also found that things with electrolytes in them really help. Of course, you're exerting yourself. You're going to be doing some sweating, and, and it's good to have those electrolytes. So I like an orange. An orange really works for me. Uh, maybe that doesn't work for everybody, but I have found that an orange can give me a real pick-me-up when I'm on a mountain and give me the strength to, to finish the climb. I also think it's important to have a substantial lunch, and some people take a little sandwich. You know, if that's what works for you, so be it, but... I like something hearty when I'm climbing, so I'll even lug a can of something up a mountain if I have to, just so that I can get a lunch that's going to fill my gut and give me some longer-term energy. Um, Some people use beef jerky. Some people use trail food. I mean, whatever works for you, but have an idea of what foods give you long-term stamina on a mountain before you do your climb. And so experiment a little bit. What foods are satisfying for you? What foods can you eat when your stomach's a little upset? What foods give you energy for more hours before you need to eat again? Those are the sorts of foods you might consider taking with you. Water is a big deal on these mountains. And odds are you're going to go through a half gallon of water, even up to a gallon of water when you climb one of these peaks. And if you think about exerting yourself for 12 hours straight in the sun, you know you're going to go through some water. 
but a gallon of water is awfully heavy to carry up a mountain. So I carry a water filter with me in most cases. And on these mountains, there's generally a stream of some sort near the trail. You know, you're going to cross streams. There are places where you can get more water. And so I'll take less water usually. Oh, I'll take a couple of liters maybe. And then I'll refill with my water pump as needed. And I also want to make sure I have enough water to get to the top and then enough water to start my way down. But once I'm going downhill, I can usually go without water for a couple of hours until I get back to the car. So a really good tip is have a gallon of water waiting in the car. You can fill up your water bottles before you leave. When you get back to the trailhead to your car, then you can rehydrate right there on the spot. And that saves you from having to carry quite as much water. But you must have a lot of water. You must drink a lot of water. It's one of the best things you can do to keep altitude sickness at bay. And so plan ahead for water. Don't don't just take a little bike water bottle up the mountain with you because that will not be sufficient. Now, let's go ahead and talk about altitude sickness at this point. Altitude sickness is what happens when your body is struggling to get enough oxygen saturation in your blood to keep all your muscles in your brain and everything else working like it always does. And this happens at altitude. When you're on top of a 14er, you are breathing just a fraction of the oxygen that people have at sea level. It's, it's really amazing how little oxygen is there if you look it up. But that can cause some real issues. And the early symptoms of altitude sickness are a headache, um, and nausea, where your stomach gets upset. If you have a mild headache and nausea, that means you're on a mountain. As far as I'm concerned, that's just part of the game. It does happen. If it starts to get severe, then you might consider taking measures to help yourself. You can ward off altitude sickness by eating right, by drinking lots of water, and some people will even take a Tylenol or an aspirin or something like that in advance of the headache to keep the symptoms at bay. The bottom line, though, is that if you develop more um, extreme altitude sickness symptoms, then the only real cure is to get down. You have to get to lower elevation, and the symptoms generally do subside relatively quickly as soon as you get back to the thicker air. It's kind of a strange thing. I get altitude sickness probably on half my climbs, and I sleep at altitude. I sleep at almost 9,000 feet above sea level, and so I still get altitude sickness climbing up to 14. I'm just susceptible to it, but it's usually not severe. It's just I recognize it because I'm familiar with the way that it feels. But for someone from lower elevations, the altitude sickness can be really debilitating. So first, you've got your upset stomach and your headache, and then it'll be a severe upset stomach and a severe headache. If you get to that point, you probably need to be heading down, just because what comes after that, you do not want to face. You start getting edema. You get pulmonary edema. That means you're, you're holding fluids in your lungs. You can get cerebral edema. Cerebral edema means you're holding fluids in your brain cavity. Yikes. Don't want to go there. These things can uh, result in hospitalization. And, you know, if you have to be rescued off a mountain, taken to lower altitude and hospitalized to recover from what was supposed to be a fun day, I think you went too far. So if you get to the point that your headache is severe and your stomach is severe, then it's probably not worth it. The mountain will be there another day. Go back down. And the next time you try a mountain, and I would say certainly try again, see if you can sleep at altitude the night before the climb and make sure that you eat and stay hydrated earlier in the day and you may not have any altitude sickness at all. So altitude sickness can be severe. It's not to be taken lightly, but mild altitude sickness is just kind of a part of climbing. So 
you'll know when it's severe enough. Because if you feel like you want to lay down on the trail and not move, you probably should be walking down instead of up. Biotropic is a biological sports performance booster supplement created by Craig Dinkle, an Olympic trials athlete, to help him train at higher levels more efficiently in order to gain a competitive edge. All natural and safe, Biotropic packs your body with the highest grade quality of the B-sweet vitamins, offers blood support, higher oxygen-carrying capabilities, an ATP booster, and vasodilation, which delivers more healthy blood content to hard-working muscles. Craig has the credentials to back it up. He twice qualified for the Olympic trials, set four NCAA records, and earned 23 All-Americans. Today, he uses biotropics to help him train in the gym, scramble up mountains, and to prepare for a six-month thru-hike of the Continental Divide Trail. Athletes and exercise enthusiasts, check out Biotropic at biotropiclabs.com, where our listeners can get a deep discount by using the code ADVENTURE. Never run out of camp stove fuel again. The 180 stove is a natural fuel stove that eliminates the need to carry heavy, bulky fuel canisters. With a generous 6-inch by 7-inch cooking surface, it folds away into a clean, compact, self-forming case that is small enough to fit inside your pocket. At only 10.4 ounces, the additional weight and space savings allows for other important items in your pack. Get more information at 180TAC.com and look for it in retailers near you as well as online. I would like to talk about emergency situations. What are some of the hazards of mountaineering? And I want to highlight those. If you know the ways that you can get hurt on a mountain, then you can protect yourself so that you can have a safe and fun experience. So a lot of people think, well, you could fall off the mountain. Sure, that's always a risk. Most of the day trip mountains that I'm talking about don't have that extreme exposure. The odds of falling off the mountain are are very, very slim. But there can be places where you have to use your hands and your feet and scramble over something where you could take a fall and maybe twist an ankle or, or break an arm or a leg or something like that. Some mountains do have those places. Don't go beyond your experience and your comfort level. It's not worth bagging a peak to break a leg. I mean, let me say it this way. It's not worth breaking a leg to bag a peak. You're not going to get up the peak anyway if you break your leg. So I think that everyone needs to decide before they start climbing that they're going to have their limit. Summit fever is a very real thing. You've worked so hard. You want it so bad to get up on top of that. It's your goal. You're striving for it. And you get to that crux move on the mountain and it's just too much for you. Don't push yourself. I mean, grow with the sport, learn rock climbing skills, get used to heights and exposure. And over time, it'll become something that you can safely do even without a rope. But if you're inexperienced and something is really shaking you up, it's not worth pushing the envelope. It's better to be safe. You know, the mountain will be there another day. Make sure that you're there to climb it. Besides falling, the dangers of gravity, probably a 
bigger danger on these mountains is weather. Weather is the number one challenge on these day trip mountains. When bad weather moves in, you can be in trouble. Even average weather on a 14er is dangerous because 14ers have lightning storms in the summertime in Colorado almost daily. It's just going to happen. Assume you will have lightning storms on the peak in the afternoon. That means you don't want to be on that mountain then. So start early, get to the top, get off the mountain before the storms build up. And you know, a few little puffy clouds over the peak are probably okay, but if the clouds start to merge together, if they start turning gray, you might consider just turning around and saying, you know what, I'll get an earlier start next time. Remember, it's not always about the summit. Really, it's more about the experience of being out there and hiking in the first place. So be safe. If you have gray clouds that are starting to merge, it's time to go down. If you have any signs of lightning, if you hear thunder, and uh, then it's time to get down maybe even faster. And what do you do if you're caught in a lightning storm on a mountain? And I've been caught in multiple lightning storms on mountains. It just happens. Um, I, I can speak directly of three instances where I've been where people's hair are standing straight up. I was standing on Mount Evans watching lightning strike the slope a thousand feet below me. Now that shook me up. I was on another mountain where I had on a felt hat, and the felt hat started arcing sparks into my scalp because the mountain was so charged. And when you get those sort of uh, buzzes going on and you're on a mountain, then you need to get off that high spot. Now, if you're above tree line, you're really exposed, but you can always get to a lower part of the mountain. And I would say move quickly and safely, as quickly as you can safely move down the mountain. And if you still feel the buzz, keep moving. If you get to the point that the buzz has gone away, then you might want to seek some shelter in a low spot. Definitely do not stay on a ridge line. Do not stay on a peak. And if you're there and you're in a lightning storm, you're going to be with your friends. Don't group up. Get 50, 100 yards apart. And the reason is if one of you gets hit with lightning, then the others will be there to help. You don't want everyone to get hit in a group, so don't cluster up together. Another thing is that most people that get injured from lightning strikes are injured from ground currents from the lightning, not from a direct hit. So you'd want to stand with your feet together. And I just learned this recently. By putting your feet together, then you eliminate the possible path for the electricity to travel up one leg and down another. And it's that current going through your body that does the damage. So if your feet are together, then there is no path for the lightning to travel through. And so the ground current will go under your feet, and the path of least resistance means you won't get much current, or at least certainly not as much as if you were standing with your feet apart. So really good idea. Put your feet together, keep your arms against your body, and be in a low spot. That's really the best advice. If you are below tree line, don't stand under the tallest tree and think that you're going to get it shelter from that because that's just a lightning rod. But if you're in a forest and you're kind of in a low spot and you are under a group of low trees, then the odds are pretty low that the lightning would strike, you know, the tree that you are under. So you could seek shelter under a small, low tree. But again, if you start to feel a buzz, get out of there. Don't stay put. Lightning is a big deal. It's probably the number one danger for day trip mountaineering. So make sure for sure that you avoid the times that lightning could strike. The second biggest danger weather related for day trip mountaineering is exposure to the elements. Um, sunburn, I mean, it can be severe. 
So make sure, like I said, be protected. Have some sunscreen. Cover up. But you can also get windburn. You can get frostbite. And the worst one is probably hypothermia. People get hypothermia in the summertime, and it can be deadly. Hypothermia starts when you start to feel cold. If you start feeling cold, it's time to warm up. And one of the best ways to avoid hypothermia is to stay dry. If you're getting really, really sweaty as you climb, do something to eliminate that. You don't want wet clothes. So stay dry. Don't get rained on without your rain gear. When the wind starts whistling across wet fabrics, it'll just take the heat right out of you. But if you start feeling cold, do something to warm up. Find some shelter. Put some more clothes on. You've got to do something. You can't just allow yourself to continue to get colder. If your lips start to turn blue, if you find it difficult to speak without slurring your words a little bit, then you've advanced to the next level of hypothermia. You might be shivering. Well, what's scary is what comes after that. You lose your ability to reason well. When your brain temperature drops, then you lose your ability to reason. And I've seen this multiple times in the woods with different people. They get kind of strange and silly. After that, they may not even feel cold anymore. And that's really scary. Sometimes in the in the advanced stages of hypothermia, people will take their clothes off because they feel like they're burning up, like they're on fire. And hypothermia victims are often found with their clothes scattered around them because of the way that it felt. So they lost their ability to reason and they threw their clothes off. And then the next step is you die. So hypothermia is a real deal. And you don't have to worry about it that much. If you have the right equipment, you can stay warm. Just be smart about it. If you start feeling cold, do something, right? Don't let hypothermia begin to drag you down. Of course, you can run into ice and snow in the late season, and I've mentioned that. If you are in anything with rock exposure, steep slopes, slippery, where a slippery slope could be very, very dangerous, then if you see a storm moving in that could create some icing or some snow, then get out of there. Just don't hang around. I have been trapped in snowstorms. Not pleasant. Um, it's not an experience that you want to be able to tell others about. You can you can have a lot more fun and have better stories another way. Now, how to climb. I want to briefly talk about the climbing itself. You don't need technical climbing skills to get up a mountain. But what you do need is a strategy. And the strategy is you start moving at a pace that you can maintain for hours and hours and hours. It can be a quick pace, but if you get winded and you have to stop, and then you sprint and you get winded and you have to stop, and then you sprint, then you are actually causing your muscles to collect lactic acid, and they won't work as efficiently. And so it makes the climb that much harder. So if you find yourself doing that, which most people do when they first start climbing, you need to slow down enough that you're at a pace that you can maintain, a steady pace that you can go. You're going to be breathing hard, but if you feel like you have to stop to catch your breath, you're going too fast. So find a cadence and keep moving. When you take a break, keep it short. Um, I don't like to stop for more than two or three minutes unless it's going to be for an extended break, maybe for a snack break or to eat lunch. Because when you stop, your muscles start to cool down and freeze up, and then it takes another half mile to a mile to get warmed up and going again. Instead, I would rather slow down my pace and rest while I move, and that way I don't get that lockup that can happen. You know, that 15-minute break, which can be, I mean, it can be very, very valuable if it's time for that, but you take too many of those, you're not going to make it to the summit. It just won't happen. So find a cadence that you can maintain and keep a steady walk where you don't have to stop to catch your breath. You can do rest steps, which is where you take a step and you pause and totally relax your uphill leg. You can even lock out your bottom leg so you don't have to support your weight with it. Let all your muscles relax and then take the next step. 
This is a very slow pace, but at the highest parts of the climb, you may find it useful. And it is the the uh, the step that most high altitude expedition mountaineers have to use because of the altitude and the steepness. So it really helps. Compression breathing is also beneficial for some people, and that's where you take a deep breath, you fill your lungs more completely than you normally would, and as you exhale, you try to pressurize the air in your lungs. So maybe you purse your lips a little bit, and as you blow the air out. It creates pressure in the lungs, which emulates being at a lower altitude. So you get more oxygen into your system. Compression breathing can be valuable. And I find that I don't use compression breathing a lot, but it does benefit me. Sometimes I'll do a compression breath, like one out of every five breaths or something like that. And I do feel the difference. You can feel the oxygen hit your body. And so I think that it is a valuable technique for you to try. And it might even help to ward off altitude sickness a little bit. Then the bottom line is for climbing a mountain, you really don't climb a mountain with your legs. You think you do because they're doing all the work. But if you're going to successfully climb a mountain, you climb it with your attitude. You climb it with your brain. It's a head game. You will get to the point that you feel like you're too tired. You will get to a point where you think you need to turn around. You will get to the point where you wonder if it's worth it. And especially if you have mild altitude sickness, you know, you're five hours into the hike. The altitude is killing you and you're going to want to turn around. But unless there's a risk, a danger, I urge you to keep going. Reach down deep inside, find out what you're made of and learn what tenacity is. Learn what stamina can do for you. And you'll find that there's a pace that you can continue. While you're very, very tired, it won't get worse. And you can maintain that pace for hour after hour after hour. If you just keep moving, then as long as it's safe, you'll make the summit and it will be worth the sacrifice. It is such an exhilaration to stand on a high mountain peak and know that you got there under your own human power and to know that you accomplished something you weren't sure that you could do and then to enjoy the views from the top, views that you just can't even describe. You know, you might drive to the top of a mountain and see the big views and ooh and ah, but until you've walked to the top of the mountain, you haven't experienced it. It's not the same thing. The endorphins kick in and it's exhilarating. And I tell you, I see people just cheer. It's a wonderful thing. I would ask one thing though. If you are climbing a 14er, then don't be the obnoxious summit guy. Don't walk up and ask people how many they've climbed so that you can tell them how many you've climbed. Don't be up there and try to give crazy advice and brag about, you know, all your mountaineering prowess. Don't be that guy. Don't be that gal. Instead, be encouraging be helpful to other people. And one tip that a man gave me on a mountaintop that I really appreciated was take off your boots. If if you don't have any threatening situations and you can take a few minutes, sitting on the top of the mountain and letting your socks dry out, letting your boots air out will save you from getting blisters. And it's so refreshing. So man, that's part of my summit celebration. I just take my boots off. I enjoy the sunshine. I enjoy the views. I take a couple of pictures. So you know what? It is so rewarding and so much fun. And I would encourage anybody, if you have any interest at all, then get out there and do it. Climb a mountain because it's an amazing, amazing experience. One word of advice. When I climbed my first 14er, it was tough. I had altitude sickness. It was a long, hard climb. I got to the top and I said, okay, I've done it. I never have to do that again. The funny thing is a couple of months later found me on another mountain. And over time, you forget the hardship and you remember the fun. But I would urge you, climb your second mountain. 
Climb your third mountain because they do get much easier. Your body adapts and you know what to expect and it gets to the point that it's just pure joy. But (laughs) probably if you just climb one mountain and stop, you may never really experience what I'm talking about. So if you have a, a tough first climb, give yourself a break for a few weeks. Go back and do another one, seriously, because you'll be amazed that the second one is so much more fun than the first. Well, that pretty much wraps up everything on the list that we need to talk about for climbing a mountain. The only thing I did not cover is first aid. I would recommend that you take a first aid kit with you up the mountain and that you know how to use it. So a few basic things. I don't take a first aid kit where I can set a broken limb, right? Instead, I just take stuff that will take care of sunburns and scratches and and cuts and bruises and maybe a headache, you know, that kind of thing. But do take a first aid kit with you. And if you do that, then you ought to be in pretty good shape for day trip mountaineering. The last thing I wanted to say before I stop for the day is that there are mountains all over the place. You don't have to be in Colorado. Throughout the West, there are mountains. There are the, you know, the Appalachians, the Smokies, back east. There are mountains even in places like northeastern Oklahoma and Arkansas and Missouri. You don't have to have a big mountain to get out and enjoy a beautiful hike and get the same exhilaration for having conquered something. So find your mountain. And uh, don't think that you have to be somewhere where there's a huge mountain range to do that. Instead, get out there, enjoy what's close by, make the most of it, and then maybe plan a trip to those places where the big mountains reign. Thank you very much for listening today. I hope you enjoyed the show, and now you know how to climb a mountain. Until the next show, get out there and have some fun. You have heard all the hype around paleo, low-carb, organics, diet powders, and the lot. How does one sort out what really works? Good news. Gary Collins has done the homework for you. Regain and maintain your health and live that life of vitality. Learn more at PrimalPowerMethod.com.